in our midst. Let's get our Bibles out and open to 1 Kings chapter 12. The Old Testament, 1 Kings 12, page 403 on the Pew Bible in front of you. You're just going to go a few books into Scripture. You come to 1 Kings. If you get to 2 Kings, you went too far. 1 Kings chapter 12. Now we're going to talk about uh, relating biblically to one another through friendship. Obviously, everything that I say will have a bearing on all of our relationships. It will certainly uh, be pertinent to our marriage relationships. And, and also, we're going to approach this a little differently than I've approached it in the past. And so, if you're maybe relatively new uh, to our faith family, you can uh, go on the website and you can go back to this past June during the summer. I preached a sermon series called Made. And uh, in, the, in mid-June, I preached a sermon series called Made for Friendship, where I deal with friendship from the other side. Uh, in that sermon, I, I broke down what the, what the Bible teaches us proactively to do about friendship. What we're going to see this morning is we're going to look at a passage from 1 Kings 12 that's going to be very instructive to our hearts because it's embedded within the story or is, is embedded many, many phenomenal relationship principles. And they come in the form of warnings. They come in the form of what not to do, and they're illustrated, and they will undoubtedly hit home uh, for many of us because we so oftentimes fall into the exact trap that is illustrated here in 1 Kings. Now, let me uh, explain the context of 1 Kings 12. When we get to 1 Kings 12, what's happened is the nation of Israel has been under the direction of king. So they had King Saul. That was a catastrophe. Then King David was anointed as the king over Israel, and... He was a great king and did a lot of amazing and wonderful things. Uh, More of his life is given to us in Scripture than the life of any other single individual outside of Jesus Christ. And so when when King David uh, dies, the kingdom goes into the hands of his son Solomon, who was uh, the wisest man who ever lived, many of you know, and who was a a great leader for the, the, the first part of his uh, kingship. He was an amazing leader for a while, but he faded at the end. And, and so Solomon's heart began to stray after foreign wives and foreign gods and things began to unravel. And because of the actions of Solomon, God prophesied to Solomon that he was going to tear the kingdom apart, that he was going to take uh, a vast portion of the kingdom away from Solomon's hand, but because of God's great love and devotion for David, that he wasn't going to do that until Solomon had died as well. And so uh, God also said that there was going to be a man named Jeroboam who was going to rise up and was going to lead the part of the kingdom that was going to be taken away from them. And so when Solomon heard this, uh, he not only killed the prophet who spoke this on God's behalf, but then he went after Jeroboam. Jeroboam uh, escaped to Egypt where he stayed in hiding through the latter years of Solomon's life. So Solomon eventually dies. And so now all of this process begins to take shape. Solomon has a a son. His name is Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is the one that everyone assumes is going to become the king and going to continue to lead uh, Israel. But God has a different plan. And so we we see the events that unfold as, uh, as Solomon passes on and now the the people of, of God turned towards Rehoboam. First Kings 12, verse 1. And Rehoboam, he went to Shechem, 
for all of Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard it, for he was still in Egypt, for he had been, where he had fled there from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, verse 3, that they sent and called him. And then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made your yoke heavy. He made our yoke heavy. And now, therefore, lighten this, the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. And so Rehoboam then replies, Depart for three days and then come back. And so the people departed. Now, there, there's, this is a thousand years before Christ. The, the entire book of Proverbs is primarily written uh, by Solomon to his son. It's a book of wisdom, and it's filled with all of these uh, wonderful, wise principles that, that this father is bestowing upon his son. And it's very uh, fascinating that, that now we're reading this story about the son who was the recipient of all of this wisdom and, and the, the things that had happened. And so when his dad dies, the people go to Rehoboam to make him king. And as they go, they just make a, a request. They say, you know, your dad was hard on us. I mean, he, he, he really taxed us and worked us hard. We had to build this, uh, this, the most elaborate temple that's ever been built. And, and now that all of that's been accomplished and your dad's passed on, maybe you can just lighten up the, the heaviness of the yoke that's upon us and we'll gladly serve you. You know, one of the things that Rehoboam undoubtedly knew was that the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 17, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before quarrel starts. That phrase, releasing water, it's like the bursting of a dam. That what happens is when strife comes in, if you don't deal with it properly up front, if you don't address it initially and deal with it right then and there, it's like a dam bursting forth and the water rushing out of the quarrel that will ensue. And once the dam bursts, there's no way to get the water back in. And so here's this moment in time where Rehoboam is looking at these people who are there to anoint him as king. They're to make him king. That's their purpose in being there. And they simply make a request. They simply are letting him know that there's some, some strife in their heart. There's a struggle. There's a little bit of, of, of conflict in the fact that they, they're, they're tired and they're worn out and they, they need a break and they need him to make some concessions. And what's amazing about all of this, it's so important to note that this issue that's facing Rehoboam was resolvable. It's resolvable. In other words, notice that the, the Bible says in verse 4, Your father made a heavy yoke. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father for his yoke, which he, the one that he put on us, and we will serve you. They're letting him know, we want to serve you. We're here to make you king. It's resolvable. But Rehoboam is going to make some critical mistakes, and they are mistakes that I have made in my life. And undoubtedly, most of you in this room have made these same mistakes. When we face a, a moment of conflict that's before us, and we don't heed the words of Scripture, we don't, we don't look through the lens of the gospel, this is what happens. The first thing that Rehoboam does is he relies on himself. He relies on himself. Notice what happens in verse 6. Then the Bible says, King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they said to him, saying, Well, 
if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, well, then they will be your servants forever. Now, it seems initially like this is a good move. Uh, he, he does the right thing in saying, well, let's take a few days and let's think about this. That's good not to, not to just act too swiftly without considering all the implications. Then it seems good because he goes and he, he seeks wise counsel. But there's a noticeable difference to initially to the way Rehoboam responds to being called as king than the way his father Solomon was called as king when David passed away. First Kings chapter 3 records what Solomon did when he became king. He prayed. The first thing he did was pray. The Bible says, records his prayer. He says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child, and I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? But you know, there's no prayer of Rehoboam. Rehoboam doesn't go in humility before God and say, God, I'm, I'm not cut out for this job. I need your help here. I need you to uh, equip me and give me... No, Rehoboam just immediately goes to the elders. Seems like a good move. Says, what should we do? The elders respond, you need to serve the people today. He didn't say you need to serve them forever. He said, you need to serve them today. You need to speak kind words to them today. And they will serve you forever. So they give him godly counsel. And there's a great relationship principle here. Rehoboam chooses not to seek God's help, but he turns initially to man because he's totally focused on what is best for him. You see, the elders come to him and they say, you need to be a servant and the people will follow you. They'll follow. He's not interested in being a servant, though. He is interested in being served, as we're going to see in a few moments. He's got his own agenda that's sort of built in. It's preloaded into this whole conversation. He's self-centered. He's not servant-minded. He's concerned about what he's concerned about, not what the people are concerned about. His focus is not on what's best for them, but what's on what's best for him. And this is a huge error whenever conflict begins to arise in our lives and in our relationships is that we move forward reliant upon ourselves. We need the Lord's Wisdom. If Adam and Eve needed wisdom from God, if they needed understanding, if they needed to know how to do what God had called them to do, if it wasn't preloaded into them, then it certainly isn't preloaded into us in this sinful and perverse generation. Now, is it? No. Don't make the mistake of relying on self. Turn initially to God. You see, what happens when we bring this mindset to our relationships, when, we, when we, we, we think of ourselves only, when we, we rely on ourselves only, when we come in this self-sufficient sort of, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to handle this. You know what we, we should be thinking is how, how, not how can I be served, but how can I serve in this situation? We shouldn't be thinking about how we can win. We ought to be thinking about how we can find victory. And so what happens is when we rely on ourselves, we only escalate the problem just as the book of Proverbs has delineated. It's like a, a dam bursting forth. So when tension arrives in our relationships, which it always will, 
You see, this is the, the tension that should be in, in, in all of our hearts right now is that we already know that God created us that, so that we need each other. We can't do this alone. But we also know that within our relationships, there's going to be tension. We know that. So automatically, we can't, we can't, we can't do it alone, but together, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be struggle. I've, I've heard it put this way. We're like, like porcupines in a snowstorm. That's what we are. That, that's, that's how oftentimes it helps me to understand my marriage. You see, it's freezing outside, and I'm a porcupine, and I'm married to a porcupine. And so we snuggle up close to each other to keep warm because it's so cold outside. But as soon as we start getting real close, we stick each other. And then we have to back up, and I'll, you know, and pull the quill out. That we, but then we get freezing cold, and so then we come back together again. And it's just this never-ending cycle of realizing that apart we can't do this, but together we're, we're, we're prickly. We poke each other. And that's how it goes. But when we learn how to relate to each other through conflict, things begin to change. So the first thing we don't want to do is rely on ourselves. The second mistake Rehoboam makes is that he refuses to listen. Oh, how many times have we seen this occur in our own lives? Look at verse 8. The Bible says, But he rejected the advice of the elders that they had given him, and he consulted the young men who he had grown up with who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father has put on us? And then the young men who had grown up with him, they spoke to him, saying, Well, thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you should make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastened you with his whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. You see, he turns from these, the, the wisdom of the elders that consulted his father, that had a proven track record. He turns to the, the young men that he'd grown up with. He turns to his peer group, his friends, and he wants their advice. You see, he's simply seeking out someone who's going to tell him what he wants to hear. That's why he's turned. He's refusing to listen. A person, anytime a person comes to me and they have a problem, I always say to them, well, now, who have you talked to about this? And when they start saying, well, I've talked to this person, I've talked to that person, I've talked to this person, I've talked to that person, I automatically know they don't want my help. They have no intention of listening to what I have to say. What they're seeking is they're seeking someone who's going to agree with them so that they can just do what they've already predetermined in their mind they're going to do. I'm just another person on the ladder of of people that they've consulted. You know, we all do this. We face a conflict in a relationship in our life, and we just bear up against it, and we just think, you know what? And we just, we just refuse to listen. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool has no delight in understanding, but only in expressing his own heart. That's what happens. We, we act like a fool, and we begin to just start going from one person to the next, and, and our relationships become marked by conflict that explodes because we have already made up our mind 
what we're going to do. And we refuse to listen to the wisdom that God has placed around us. The book of Proverbs goes on in chapter 18 to say that he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. You see, wisdom dictates to us that we need to be listeners first before we open our mouths. We need to listen. And so when we, we need to seek God first, we need to turn, then we need to listen to the wisdom that He's placed in our lives. That doesn't mean that every time somebody tells us something that it's correct or that we ought to do it. But here's the thing. You, you, I'm taking for granted that you would automatically have enough sense to know that when you have an issue in your life that you're not exactly sure what the wise thing to do is, you're going to seek out somebody who's much wiser than you are, who has a greater command of Scripture than you have. And you're going to go to them and you're going to explain to them the situation. And they're going to respond to you. And then you're going to take that to heart, what they say, and consider that and, and allow that to just soak into your, your, your heart. You see, a person who refuses to listen is always going to be somebody who rejects compromise. They're going to reject the obvious solution that lies before them. There, there's always a missing part of the conflict. They're always going around what, what the solution that God has before them. And every time, either they, they don't, they tell you everything about the conflict except one little piece, or they just go around that piece every time as if it's just insurmountable and keep running into the same brick wall because they don't want to, they only want to do what they've already decided in their mind that they want to do. See, you can't, you can't, you can't come to resolution. You can't move forward in, in some sort of compromise if you're unwilling to listen. Now, can you? No. It requires listening. And so what Rehoboam does is he relies on himself. He refuses to listen. And then thirdly, he rejects compromise. He rejects resolution that's right before him. You see, the elders didn't tell him to forget about everything that he wanted to do. They didn't tell him that. You know, maybe these things are things that he wanted to do. Fine. They didn't tell him that, that these are things that he couldn't do or shouldn't do. They just simply offered a compromise. They simply said, why don't you serve them today and respond to them and kind of serve them today and they'll, they'll follow you. There is resolution right before us. But the Bible says in verse 8, he rejected the advice of the el- that the elders had given him. He rejected that. You see, when, when compromise is off the table, when, when the resolution that's right before us is out the window, then what happens? Then all of a sudden, this devastating model starts to take place in our relationships. And you know what this is. I have talked to you about this on multiple occasions in the last six months. Competition. Competition has no place between a husband and a wife, between a brother and a sister, between a, 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 in, a, in a faith family, between one another. Competitive, this competitive sort of win-lose mentality that, that breeds its way, its evil way into our relationships is ungodly and devastating. Let me illustrate for you. Because it, it comes in many different ways. Usually it comes in the win-lose. You know this. You've been in conflict with people before. And so there you are. You're in conflict. And, there, and it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And what's really going on? What's going on is you're trying to win an argument with someone you love. Now, just stop and think this through for a second. Your, your purpose is to win. And in order to win, you've got to 
damage or demoralize a person who's meaningful in your life. That's insanity. But we do it all the time. We, the, the flesh in us wants to win. We want our point to be made. We want to be seen as the one who was right. It's pride is what it is. It's sin. It's, it's not the gospel. The gospel is never, I win at your expense. Never. That's never the gospel. But sometimes it comes in other little sneaky ways. Sometimes it comes as win, as lose-win. Sometimes it's lose-win. You see, sometimes our goal in conflict subconsciously is just to get the other person to lose. It's not necessarily that we want to win. We just want them to lose because we're against what they're doing. And so we just, our, our heart just kind of rejoices in their losing, in their struggling, in their toiling because we're not behind this. We don't. So rather than sit and have a constructive, open, God-honoring conversation, we literally root people on to lose in some endeavor. Don't look at me like that. You know it's true. So it's win-lose. It's lose-win, but sometimes it's lose-lose. Some of the most painful situations that I've walked through with some of you have been lose-lose situations. You know what lose-lose is? Lose-lose is when, is when I've been hurt and I feel like I've lost. And so now I'm going to... I'm gonna turn all of my energy and effort towards making sure that you feel as terrible as I do. You're going to lose because I've lost. This so often rears its head in divorce. How many times have we seen uh, a marriage bust apart and because one spouse is so wounded and so devastated and so heartbroken that they now use the children to wound and devastate the other spouse. It's lose-lose, and it's unbiblical, and it's ungodly in every way. There is no room for competition in our relationships in the kingdom of God. There is no, there's no place for me to want to win at your expense. There's no place for me to want you to lose. There's no place for me to want you to feel the loss that I felt. That's just completely inappropriate. And yet our flesh will lead us down this path to destruction every time. And God operates always and only in the win-win conflict resolution. That's how God moves. That's how God works. God is, we serve a God who is implanted in His creation, just like gravity is an inescapable law of creation. Win-win in the kingdom of God is an inescapable law of creation. That's the way God works it. God, the gospel says that, you know what? When you seek the best interests of others, God says, I'm going to, Make sure that it works out for the best interest of you. That's the gospel. That's what God promotes. That's what God promises. The gospel says that when we seek first the benefit of other people, that not only do they win, but then we win as well. And you see, the, 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 the hard part about that is, is that we don't always see the win up front. 
And so just before the service, I went over there and talked to Avery for a few moments. And I, and I, I know that it's hard to stand up in front of all these hundreds of people and sing a song. And I told her, I said, Avery, I want you to remember at your deepest, darkest moment when your heart was broken and you were saying, God, why is all this happening to me? Why am I going through this? You remember how bad that was? Now you know. Now you have seen firsthand at your young age, you've seen Romans 8.28 play out in your life. You've seen God use what was so painful and so unexplainable to you at one time and how you've turned towards God and made up your mind you're going to honor God in all things and God has blessed you and used you and advanced His kingdom through you. You see, He's a win-win God. And when we, when we infuse competition into our relationships, we reject the plan of God in resolving our differences. If I could just somehow get all of the marriages in this room to understand this principle, stop competing. When you face conflict with your children, with each other, if you don't handle it correctly, no one wins. Making your point is not a win. It's not a win. But you haven't you ever asked yourself this question? Well, because it always happens when I get in the middle of it. I get in the middle of a husband and the wife, and one's going like this, and the other one's going like this. And it's and I'm thinking. Hey, what started all this? And everybody stops. Uh, let me think. Then they get all the way back to where it started and they go, gosh, that was stupid. Hello? Hello? Yeah, it was stupid. But this is what happens. Once you start trying to prove your point, World War III ensues over the most ridiculous, simple thing. That doesn't matter. So Rehoboam, he teaches us. Hey, he relies on himself. He refuses to listen. He rejects the obvious compromise, the resolution that's in front of him. Fourthly, he chooses harsh words. It's another great principle that's taught here in Scripture of what not to do. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed. And they said to him, Notice they even call him the king. They're already referring to him as the king. He said, come back to me on the third day. Then verse 13. Then the king, the king, answered the people roughly. And he rejected the advice which the elders had given him. You see, the way that we speak to one another is going to be crucial in finding God's resolution. We, we cannot just say, well, it was the way I was raised. Oh, well, it's just the way I am. No, it's not. There is no place in gospel-centered relationships for harsh, inappropriate words. Rehoboam comes back with this rough language for no reason. There's no reason for it. But yet he uses it anyway. And you know what? What I know and what you know is the better that we know somebody, the closer we are to somebody the easier it is and the more deeply they can wound us. You see, the words of a stranger, they bounce right off us. 
but somebody who knows us deeply and intimately, somebody that we've allowed ourselves to be vulnerable to, can slay us with their tongue. See, we have to be careful with the words that we choose. We have to be careful with the way that we speak. We have to ask ourselves questions like, are the words that I'm about to use, are they words that are meant to bring about resolution or to hurt? Because if they're to wound, if I'm coming with words of weaponry, I'm in sin. And I am not going to see God's resolution come through that. He will not bless that. Rehoboam made a tense situation just ten times worse because he chose to use harsh words. He didn't choose his words carefully. And so he lashed out in anger and in pride, and the result was devastating. The Bible... Do you know the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom, as I've already said. Do you know what topic in the book of Proverbs is most commonly addressed? What more Proverbs refer to than any other area of wisdom? They refer to speech, the tongue, and words. God's trying to tell us something about wisdom. That so much of wisdom has to do with the words that we choose to communicate. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. You see what Rehoboam does is he responds in harshness because he's not interested in resolution. He's not interested in serving. He's not interested in what's best for the other person. He's protecting his position. All he's interested in is being king and ruling. He's not, he's not worried about or concerned with restoring the relationship. You see, when we get ourselves in conflict with somebody that God has put us in a relationship with, that we love in a gospel-centered way, the relationship is preeminent. That eliminates all the competition. Why are we using harsh words that can only break down the relationship? We make the relationship the top priority. So we find ourselves embroiled in this conflict or this tense situation. And we got to respect the power of words. We got to know that the tongue has the ability to do great damage. You know, when God created the world, what did he use? Words. He just spoke. See, words have the power to bring life, but they also have the power to bring death. They, once a word is spoken, you can't take it back. It's there. It's out. You can never retract it. You can never take away. You can never make it as if it never happened. Proverbs 12, verse 8 says this about words. There is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Yes, you can say you're sorry. Yes, you can say I didn't mean it. Yes, you can say I take it back. But let me ask you a question. When somebody pulls the sword out of your stomach after they stabbed you, is everything good? No. It's like a sword. You see, words penetrate deeply into us like a sword. They pierce through our external uh, barriers and they get into the inside of who we are. We don't want to swing the sword around at one another. No. Because words, they, they take residence inside of us. See, 
every adult in here. Isn't it crazy how every parent in here knows? We remember the harsh words that were spoken to us as children. We know intimately how those words affected us when we heard them. We still carry them today. We can still remember where we are, what happened, what we were doing. And yet we still struggle with our own children. You would think that the cycle would just stop. It just proves how devastatingly sin-filled we are. That we know the pain and yet we turn right around and inflict it on our children. And then they carry the pain. And then the cycle continues, generation after generation. Look at verse 14. The Bible says, And then he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. You see, the, the point of this story, the point of this story is that Rehoboam, he squanders the opportunity to glorify God. It's right in front of him. But he squanders it. That, this, that, that life is going to come with relationships, that relationships are going to come built in with conflict, but that every time conflict comes into our relationships, it's an opportunity for us to grow. It's an opportunity for God to glorify Himself. That every single conflict between you and me and the one another's that we represent is an opportunity for God to bring the win-win principle to bear on our lives. Every time. And even in the midst of sometimes just great injustice and great pain and great suffering... We cannot negate the reality of the power of the gospel to bring forth fruit, to bring goodness into devastating situations. Do you know what happened? The Bible says in verse 15 that the king didn't listen to the people and that the turn of these events were from the Lord that he might fulfill his word. That a sovereign God who knew exactly what was going to happen, who prophesied before his dad ever died that, you know what, you're going to lose half the kingdom because of your disobedience. But I'm not going to have to take it from you because I already know that your son is going to do the wrong thing in conflict and is going to squander the opportunity. And that's exactly what happens. That he's a, he's a sovereign God who has purposes in all of this. And it doesn't excuse Jeroboam for what he did, but we need to understand that God is at work and God works through the sinfulness of people to accomplish his plan. Amen. And so let's don't run around waving the flag of justice and let's just stop a minute and seek the face of a sovereign God who works in all circumstances to bring forth that which is good for us. But you know what these harsh words did? The people of Israel never, ever, ever forgot them. They're burned into their heart just like they're burned into your heart, the things you heard when you were small. And now they're burned into Scripture. If you look down at verse 19, look at what the Bible says. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. To this day. That the events that we just read about, what started with such a simple little struggle, what started with such a fixable problem, blew up into something that is now recorded in Scripture, the results of which last to today. Oh my goodness. How many families have been blown apart 
by something that was so fixable, that the gospel could have so been a balm of healing upon it. How many wounds, how, how, many, how many people, how many children in God's kingdom have siblings that they haven't spoken to for a decade? Don't even remember why. Strife that has just ripped us apart because we didn't handle conflict God's way. You see, on one level, Rehoboam could say, hey, I won. I won. I got my way. I, I determined in my heart that I wasn't going to make it easier for the people. I was going to make it harder. Well, you know what? He won the battle. He got his way. But he might have won the battle, but he never saw the victory. You see, we will squander victory because we just want to win this battle. We lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of the glory of God playing out in our lives because we've got this little battle in front of us that we're obsessed with trying to win. We need to be careful. We need to think about the kinds of conflicts that we find ourselves in, in our marriage relationships and in our friendship relationships and our brother and sister relationships. Most of the things that we argue over, they're irrelevant to the bigger picture. And if we're not careful, the grinding continuance of festering issues that have gone unresolved, that there is a very simple solution right in front of us, but because we have failed to to yield to what God is putting before us, they continue to fester and they've never been dealt with and they're never put to rest and they wear us down and they wear us down. And because we're fighting these battles, we never win the victory. It's a very strong warning. For God's family. Far too often, when conflict arises in our lives, we choose to focus on ourselves, to not listen to the voices around us, to reject the resolution that God has put right before us, and to use harsh words to tear down the person that's in front of us. So, what do we need? What do we need in our relationships? What, what kind of friendships does God want us all to share? What, what, what kind of friendships make this place flourish the way it does? Incarnational friendships. That's what you want in your life. You want to seek out. I see this played out in your lives constantly. Constantly, all the time, daily. I see people in this room loving other people in this room incarnationally. They invade their world and they love them. Just And I see it generationally. I, we walked through a very devastating, tragic loss in the, live, in, the, in the life of one of our senior adults a few years ago. And I can remember going over to her house And I can remember her just weeping, just sobbing, covered with tears, looking at me. And she said, she said, Pastor, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do if it wasn't for the people that God has put in my life. People who stayed at her house, who cooked her meals, who slept, left their families and slept in her house. And she said, I don't know what I would do. Now, that was several years ago. 
Just this past week, I sat down with a senior adult in our fellowship. And she began to tell me about this great struggle that's before her in her life. And then she said this to me. She said, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do if it wasn't for Betty. The same lady who said to me, I don't know what I would do if it wasn't for them, has now turned around and been incarnational in someone else's life because someone's been incarnational in her life. That's how this works. That's how God's called us to love each other. That in our friendships, in our relationships, in our brother and sister in Christ bond, that we imitate the gospel to one another. That conflict is going to come. Don't be surprised. Listen. If I poke you, the first thing you need to say to yourself is, well, what do you expect from a porcupine? That's what I am. And if you keep getting closer and closer and closer, eventually I'm going to stick you. But it's okay. We're going to work through it. Because that's how God grows us. That's the beauty of relating to one another. I have said week after week after week since we've been in this series that everything that I'm saying is built around the truth that all of our relationships, the goal of all of our relationships is to imitate the gospel. And Paul lays that out for us in Ephesians 5 where he begins the chapter by saying, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us and offering in a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. There is our marching orders with relationships. That's, that's, that's all we need to do. Be imitators of God. How, how? Just think closely about what that says. Imitate God. Who? As dear children. Now listen. When somebody outside the family of, of God starts stabbing you and hurting you and well, hello. Surely you're not surprised by that. That's the world that we live in. It will just eat you up, chew you up, and spit you out. But as children of God, our goal is to be imitators of God. You see, you can't imitate God if you're not His son or His daughter. You can't do that. You can't impart, as I said last week, something to someone you don't possess. You can't do that. But the people of God are called to be imitators of God and to walk in love. And so I think Hebrews 4 is a New Testament passage that lays out uh, all the, the error of Rehoboam and puts it in a gospel context for us. This will come up on the screen. It, it teaches us how Jesus relates to us in a, in a gospel-centered way. The writer of Hebrews says, seeing then that we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now I want you to think about what that says. 
I want you to think about the fact that in our relationships so oftentimes we fall into the trap of what Rehoboam did. We, we, we focus on ourselves. We rely on ourselves. But notice what the gospel says. The gospel says Jesus passed through the heavens. He forsook everything about Him on our behalf. He left the perfection and the glory of heaven and came to this sin-stained, cursed, evil, wicked world for you and me. He put us before Himself. He led by example. He pierced through the heavens and incarnated. He invaded our world. He came into the conflict that we had. He involved Himself intimately in the conflict that was before us. That's what He did. And you know what? Look, read what it says in verse 15. You see, Rehoboam, he refused to listen. But what did Jesus do? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to feel lonely. He knows what it's like to be let down. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to be let down by people that you've given so much for. He understands. And He listens. He's sympathetic. He knows how that feels. He's not just saying, oh, well, He's not just giving you some kind of correction from outside. I mean, listen, when your heart is broken, the worst thing is to come to somebody and to, and to, and to say, I'm just hurting and I'm just struggling. Them to just not even hear what you have to say and just start blurting out things that you ought to do to fix it. No one wants to hear that. You see, you know what, what, what generates this gospel-centered love that we have here is because we're involved in this together. That we walk together. That we sympathize with each other. That's why it's so important for us to not put on these fronts and act like we've got it all together and that we don't struggle with those things in our life and that, that we have a, a perfect family relationships and we're not. No. We just admit that it's hard. Every day is a challenge. But Jesus can sympathize. He listens when we go to Him. And you know what? We so oftentimes, we, we reject the solution that's right before us. You know why? Because we don't want to do that. Why? Because it's too hard. Because the solution that's right there is too hard. We, we know well, I could solve this conflict right now, but in order for me to do that, I'm going to have to really swallow my pride. I'm going to really have to put myself out of it. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to make me look bad. It's going to be, hello, what did Jesus do? He hung naked on a cross, bloody and beaten. He went all the way to the end. He knew that the only way to restore us to God, the only way to be the, the great high priest who could intercede on our behalf was to go the full way, to take the hardest possible route. That if that's the way we're going to resolve it, that's the way He's going to do it. And that's what He did. And so we come behind Him. And when we have a conflict with one another, we don't shy away from we don't shy away from a, a solution because it's too hard, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to make me look bad, because it's going to make me have to swallow my pride. No, we do what Jesus did. We put the other person, we put the relationship above what we want. And finally, we used harsh words. That's what Rehoboam did. That's what I've done far too often in my life, is use harsh words. Well, what does the gospel say in Hebrews 4? 
the gospel declares that we come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Why? Could it be that because we're born needy, because embedded in us is a need for God, and then God swings open the door of heaven and says, you come boldly to me. And what happens when you come? You come to me and what am I going to do? I'm going to slap you in the face. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to berate you. I'm going to belittle you. No. God says, no, you come. You come to me boldly and you're going to obtain mercy. You're going to find grace. You see... The gospel simply declaring, extend to one another that which has been extended to you. Get away from competition. Get away from what someone deserves. My goodness, thank God we didn't get what we deserve. Why are we so determined that now in earthly relationships, what people deserve is what they're going to get? God calls us to lay down our swords. To stop trying to win the battles. And to focus on the victory. Focus on the victory that the gospel brings to bear in our lives. You know what? I don't want to be a winner. I don't. I don't want to win. I want to be a servant. I want my heart to want to serve, not to win. Because I know that that's what the gospel did in me. Jesus didn't. He he didn't come to win. He put the relationship, the relationship above everything. Now let's get one thing straight. When he comes back, it's on. The victory. The victory will be had. So let's love each other in an incarnational way. Thank God for you. May God continue to grow in us a desire to incarnate the gospel in each other's lives. To be involved. To be involved. Listen. We can't, we can't be in incarnational friendships if we're not in community with each other. No one can get in, no one can come alongside you in your conflict if they don't know you, if they don't know what your conflict is. And then all you're going to do is get some external wisdom from the outside. And I say that the lesson in all of this is a little girl with a broken heart, a mom and dad who impart wisdom the way God instructed. And then as that family began to take hold of the victory that was coming from the seeming defeat of the battle, the family that surrounds the family comes around and says, let's just see God get all the glory. You know what? I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. I hope that every child and every teenager grows up here and experiences that kind of relationship in their life. Let's stand, bow our heads.
Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, for first and foremost the incredible resolution that you brought to the insurmountable conflict that we created. And Lord God, we stand before you in this moment. Men and women, students, children who were once utterly and completely condemned by our sin, hopeless in the conflict that was before us, doomed to face judgment for our failures. And yet, Lord, You intervened. You came. You brought forth victory through putting, putting us before Yourself by putting the relationship, by bringing reconciliation at all costs. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your sacrifice on the cross. Thank You that You hung in my place condemned and naked and humiliated and embarrassed. Thank You, Lord because I deserve to be there. But thank You that You did that for me. And Father, thank You for the remarkable gift of family. And thank You for giving us the remarkable ministry of the Holy Spirit that He might work within our family and and lead us and guide us and compel us to love one another in an incarnational way. Lord, may you continue to be glorified in the love in this room. God, the love that will be yet again enhanced and deepened as we break from this and move to smaller gatherings. Lord, as people share their hearts and give testimony of what you've done. Lord, as we are able to huddle next to one another in the struggles of life, in the pain of life, in the great losses of life, God, may it be true that through all sickness, all struggle, all toil, all loss, all grief, all hurt, that we saw your glory by the people that you put around us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Father. We're not where we need to go, but God, thank you for where we are and thank you for where you're taking us. May you be glorified as we respond to You, Lord, considering all that has taken place in the Gospel. God, give us courage. There may be some resolution that needs to take place in this room. And God, may it be so for Your glory. We lay down the sword. We turn our back to competition. And Father God, we walk forward in, to win for our brother's sake, for our sister's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.